What am I to do? Welcome to Razor Branding Podcast with Jackie Russo. To learn more about how to improve your brand, visit brandrusso.com. Hi, it's Jackie Russo. Thanks so much for joining us at Razor Branding Podcast. Today, I am both honored and delighted to have Sam from the Acadiana Center for the Arts joining us. Um, It was sort of going to be in person for just a minute, but we went back to online like we're supposed to do. So, Sam, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. So glad to be here, too, Jackie. Thank you for having me on. Well, you know, Michael made so many jokes uh, before we went on about symphony and confusing the two. I was like, I'm going to say it wrong just because he planted that seed in my head. So <laughs> luckily I managed to pull it off. You were pulling it out. No problem. I did. I did. It took a minute, though. So, yeah. Sam, how long have you been with the ACA? Uh, because I feel like it's been forever and five minutes. Well, I feel like 2020 alone has lasted about 18 years. But, yeah, I've been here for two years as okay. of October 29th. Uh, so just, just past my two year mark, of course, the past, you know, eight months of that have been in virtual quarantine, Right. Uh, but, but it's been, you know, it's been a wonderful time. I'm from Lafayette originally. So it's been two years back in town in general too. And, uh, yeah, it's good to be home, you know? <laughs> well, and you, when you left Lafayette, you went on this world tour of awesomeness, building up your resume. Why don't you catch well, us up a little bit on all the things you were doing for this big circle you made just to get right back to downtown Lafayette? Well, I mean, I, I went off to, I left, as a lot of people do, to go to college elsewhere, went to LSU, uh, studied Latin for some reason. Uh, sure, that's a big to, profitable endeavor, right? It is. Yeah, you really, most people get into Latin for the money. Right, uh, of course, of course. Kind of like investment banking in that way. Uh, and of course, what you do when you major in Latin is the next thing you have to do is move to Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, which, you know, again, just like investment banking. Uh, so, you know, I was there in Edinburgh, did a, did a master's program in business administration. And Is there and a lot of Latin spoken in Edinburgh? <laughs> there's, there's some languages spoken there, but I was very unclear as to what it was the entire time. Do you uh, own a kilt? <laughs> you know, I don't. Okay. I, I think I'm entitled to uh, my graduation kilt, but I, I neglected to attend my own graduate graduation ceremony. Uh <laughs> which would have required an additional flight back to uh, Scotland. Now, of course, you know, take take a take an extra trip back to Scotland whenever you can get one. But it, it wasn't in the cards at the time. But I should have just bought the kilt and sat at home. Right. Uh, you know, at least that that would have been nice. I would have had to cross my legs, of course, because that's just decent. Um, but I, while, while I was in Edinburgh, I worked for the Edinburgh International Festival for the city of Edinburgh's uh, government, kind of their uh, governmental arts council there as well. And then I was in New Orleans after that, worked for the New Orleans Film Festival, the Arts Council, the, and then where I really landed was the Contemporary Arts Center, the CAC, uh, until for several years uh, before finally kind of making my, my grand return to Lafayette uh, as the executive director here at the ACA, the Acadia. So if you were a Wheel of Fortune contestant, you can only buy letters of C's and A's, basically. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think on Scrabble, there's some of the cheaper letters, but you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Easy to afford. So as you've made this whirlwind circle halfway around the globe and back again, um, what was it that drew you back to Lafayette? Was it the job? I mean, I'm sure friends and family and all those things you're supposed to say, but did we woo you back here because we, we let you run the um, entire arts and culture department of Lafayette? Well, it certainly had something to do with it. But I mean, it, it's really for the same reason that, 
I, I couldn't stay in Edinburgh, which wasn't because of passport reasons. It was because, you know, when I was when I was living and working at Edinburgh, it was, you know, it's just amazing, beautiful town. They they truly, truly value uh, their arts and culture and they value them as as you know, part of the quality of life, of why people want to live there, be there, of what, you know, how they raise the stature of the community to this international scale, and how it, you know, really helps provide a great economic driver for the city. You have millions and millions of people pass through Edinburgh for their festivals, all that stuff. And so there's this wonderful flourishing place. And after, you know, about a year of being there, I was saying, this is really great. But this is really great for them. Right. It's not for me at the end of the day. Like I, it's a beautiful place. It's absurdly beautiful. Uh, what's happening is fun. This is all great. seems like they've got it figured out. They don't need me here. Uh, and what I was really missing was the, the culture from, from the area that I grew up in, uh, where, where we have this, this vibrant living culture that is our own, that lives in our music and our dancing and our food, uh, you know, and on and on and on and how intertwined and alive that is in, in really just kind of the casual community here. And so, so certainly I've been looking for, you know, a way to return to participate in that uh, actively and, and from my professional capacity, really for my, my whole career. So, so yeah, it was very, very good to uh, be able to come back in a, in a professional role here, but certainly I always wanted to. So what I hear you saying is you went haggis, etouffee, etouffee. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd put haggis and boudin a little closer. Okay, sure, and, sure. Know, it's almost like boudin without the rice. Okay. There's, there's some, you know, there's a lot of innards. There's a lot of unspeakables and unmentionables in there. Right. Um, but, but yeah, essentially, you know, haggis, boudin, 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 boudin's delicious. Haggis, yes, boudin wins every time. Special occasions only on the haggis side. <laughs> boudin every day. So you come back, you've been here about a year and a half, things are going well, and all of a sudden, March of 2020 happens. Um, how much of the year had y'all, you know, planned out, sold tickets to, had to cancel? I mean, what was that experience like? Well, you know, our our kind of season, as we call it, uh, essentially follows the school year. So we were kind of in that last stretch, looking ahead at a really busy April and May to close out our season. And, you know, we, we actually had a really, really phenomenal show at ACA on March 10th. Uh, Scott Mulvihill, this bassist who I think was just on the, uh, the Stephen Colbert uh, late show uh, last week. So he, was, he played the, the theater here. We had the Rayo Brothers open for him. It's just this cool, cool night. Uh, a wonderful crowd, sold out show. And two days later, shut down. <laughs> And we were, we, you know, we were really so looking. We had so many shows on our on the rest of our season that I was just thrilled about. And of course, you know, they had to cancel what was remaining on that season. And uh, and we really have had to look at okay, what can we even do? You know, looking ahead as as you know, if you remember eight months ago, how it seemed like the next two days were completely unpredictable. I feel like, you know, now we're kind of back in that state again, yeah. but, but, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't look ahead. Uh, what seemed like more than 48 hours. And so we were trying to really plan for, okay, well, what are we going to do for the next year, for the next season that begins in the fall? How do we prepare for that? And how do we try to pivot, change, do whatever we can do? Uh, 
uh, and so that that's really where especially the the difficulties began because you know as the situation continues and as these kind of phases keep getting pushed on and on and on and how they're kind of poorly defined phases like maybe maybe in phase three you'll be able to do some of these things but we're not going to tell you until phase three starts. it's a surprise <laughs> and uh and so we did book a season, but we booked it with the full understanding, I think, of our audience members, our ticket buyers, as well as our artists and agents, which is if and when shows need to be rescheduled, they will be rescheduled and they'll be rescheduled for another date. We'll punt it down the road. We'll let everybody know and we'll, we'll just try to keep going that way and hope that that doesn't happen for longer than we can bear it. <laughs> Yeah, we'll just keep apologizing to people. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But but I mean that's just where we are because that's where the entire world is. Well, and I would imagine that so much of the ACA experience, or at least for me, it has been being physically in the building. Unlike um, the festivals that can go virtual, mm -hmm. as a provider of venue space, it's you've done it, I think, a good job with Art Walk and you've tried to kind of work around uh, like the Illustrated Cafe, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But mm -hmm. ultimately, you need people physically in your building. So what do you do yeah. in the meantime for budget? Well, I mean, I'll just say on that, on the term of people being physically in the building. Yeah, I mean, whether or not they're in our building, I think art is something that has real value and utility when people experience it together. You know, art is a way for people to share a common experience, to communicate something, whether it's just a beautiful thing or whether it's something that goes, I don't think that's art and that somebody else says, I think that is. And then they have a discussion about it. Uh, but, you know, art lives in people and it lives in that space between people, which, you know, can happen on the couch at home. You know, certainly Netflix has a lot of great shows. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we think that it happens in our community when people come outside of their house or when they share space, especially outside of their immediate family members. So our goal has been to facilitate that in a really safe and reasonable way because we've certainly seen uh, businesses and places around Acadiana that are doing that in a not safe way. So we really, it was one of our goals to say, okay, we need to show a gold standard of you can do this, you can do it. <laughs> sure, we have more space than most people do. So we're privileged in that way, but you can do it. Uh, and we think that, I mean, I believe that that's where culture really lives is in those kind of physical spaces where people come together, where they create a community because they're chit-chatting, uh, where they're sharing their ideas and their experiences. And that's what makes Acadiana amazing. <laughs> right. Oh, for sure. So when you look at other arts centers that are similar to the ACA around the country, or around the world, who do you think has really managed to continue to fulfill their mission well while being safe during these past eight months? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think you see a lot of the major museums that were able to reopen and kind of set their standard and say, look, you weren't supposed to touch anything in here anyway. And if you were doing that, you were already messing up. Right. Uh, so, so, you know, in, in larger museum spaces, they could welcome people back uh, more easily than elsewhere. I think they've seen lags and audiences coming back very understandably because it's you know still most advisable for people who are in the higher risk categories to completely limit themselves it's that's devastating and sad uh but it that is the medical advice and so i'm, I'm not going to give anything other than that <laughs> but um but yeah i mean you see 
uh, leading museums. If you look at the MoMA in New York, if you look at Fritz in Nashville, if you look around the country, you have these great examples and and we're part of those networks and we, we you know, attend the same webinars and, and listen to the same podcasts uh, about what we, what we can do, what we should do. But so much of what we're focused on too is the the artist during this time too, who, um, you know, much as we serve the broad audience and trying to get them, you know, uh, what we think of as a vital cultural experience, uh, it, it's also about the artist during this time where, you know, no other profession that I know of is as hardly hit, maybe cruise lines, but, you know, when you think about musicians, when you think about kind of craftspeople who just don't have those uh, places where they can, you know, get paid for their work because right. festivals or little concerts aren't happening or because the fairs and festival, you know, markets aren't happening. It's so, so many people. And you, I think, I think the average person would be shocked at how large that economy is in our state, in our community even compared to something like the oil and gas <laughs> economy, where we think about you know, oil and gas is this major driver. In 2018, the you know creative economy in Lafayette Parish was larger than the oil and gas uh, economy. It was, it was like $1.8 billion versus 1.6. Uh, so when you think about that, it's just, it's hidden to most people because it's not one big business knocking on doors saying, hey, we're important. It's a lot of little people and a lot of little uh, transactions, microtransactions uh, that that build up to this big groundswell that ultimately makes this place a cool place to live. <laughs> well, and it's it's a, a multifold approach, right? Because it's not just the places that we go here locally on a Friday night to hear a band um, or buy a CD. It's also the festivals that bring in visitors. So that entire cultural economy, as they call it, um, really is the day in day out driver of so many other businesses, whether it's hotels and restaurants and art walks and all of those components of the arts, right? Absolutely. I mean, you definitely have to think, I mean, I think of restaurants as cultural businesses Again, maybe certain kinds of restaurants versus others, but no, we're not going to get into that discussion. Right, right. <laughs> but, well, so but, but, but that's the thing is that that is it is the broader uh, force of, of economic impact that happens when we have a vibrant, uh, you know, social and cultural life. They're 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 in, they're inseparable from one another. And I would agree. And I, I know there's this and I don't want to touch the third rail, which is politics right now. Um, mm -hmm. But I do know that there are people who feel like the government in various ways should do more to help the cultural economy and others who feel like they should do less and just focus on um, roads and ditches. So how can we find that middle ground where or is there a middle ground where both sides can be um, heard and supported and yet we can still thrive where we need to be? Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, where's that road going to go? And why are people, why do people want to go there? You know, <laughs> yep. there, there are a lot of roads in this world that have zero economic uh, benefit to the community. They don't produce jobs. They don't create prosperity. They don't create vibrancy. So it is about a balance. It's, you know, you need to have the infrastructure for people to live in a community, of course, of course. But you also want people to want to live in that community. Otherwise, the infrastructure is irrelevant and pointless, you know, in a way, and right. frankly, make the money. 
Right. So it is, it is about, about a balance. And I think, you know, yeah, without, without getting into politics, I think, I think it is, it, there is a bigger case that needs to be made to our political leaders that look, this is, this is a driver of our prosperity as our community. And when we ask questions like how, how do we grow as a community? Uh, you know, who do we want to be as a community? Where do we want to go? <laughs> how do how do we ensure that you know our children's future uh, will be brighter and and more assured than our our own present? And that's a really really big conversation. And it's not just about roads and drainage and 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 things like that. That yeah, it's that's that's maintenance. But when we talk about what do we really want to like invest in to to make this place. Uh, somewhere that, you know, 50 years from now is as transformed as Lafayette was and Acadiana was from 50 years ago to today, uh, which I think people take for granted that that transformation just happened on its own. <laughs> uh, so, so the question is, you know, what are we, what are we investing in today that will help us put, you know, be, be something transformed and new and, and wonderful 50 years from now? And for me, that the core nugget of that lies in our culture uh, and especially those institutions that are relatively small investments that help make it uh, stand out compared to communities of our size, stand out, you know, shoulder and head above other kind of mid-sized cities. But we only, you know, we only stay there if we try to stay there. <laughs> in Edinburgh, actually, there was a uh, there was a report uh, in 2004, or so before I was there, that they called "thundering hooves," which, a, which sounds so much more impressive when you say it with a Scottish accent. Sure. But the "thundering hooves" report uh, was all about Edinburgh is this amazing festival city. Uh, it's considered the European capital of festivals and a, really a world capital of festivals. The, the, the Edinburgh Fringe and the Edinburgh International Festival bring five million visitors to, to the city of Edinburgh over the course of three weeks, uh, <laughs> which is wow. insane. It's a city of only half a million people too. So it effectively quadruples the population for any given period of time during those, that short span. Uh, and, the, and because of the infrastructure they put in place for that, they've created all these other festivals. There's so much year-round activity. There's visitors. But then it's also just a vibrant place to live, you know. But the Thundering Hooves report said that other cities are catching on, that this is a way that, you know, that Edinburgh and several other, you know, leading cities around the world had demonstrated that you can really lead economically by investing in culture and other cities and other places are catching on and they're catching up. And what that report said is that basically Edinburgh was taking for granted that they had these great institutions at these great festivals, these great identities, but they really at a certain point had just kind of fallen flat in their support of them. They said, okay, well, you know what we did last year, that's going to be good enough for this year too. Or, oh, well, it's, it's, you know, austerity time. So we're going to, we're going to do, we're going to cut here. We're going to cut here because we're going to cut everywhere. And what that report was saying was <clears throat> they're catching up fast. Mm -hmm. The thundering hooves are right behind you. So if you, where you want to be tomorrow is where you are today, which is at the head of the pack, you need to do something to get there. And I think Lafayette and Acadiana is in a much similar position, which is if we want to be 
uh, ahead of the curve, especially on the other side of the pandemic, uh, as no doubt many, many municipalities will scrap their art and culture and, and their quality of life assets because they, you know, are balancing a lot of different priorities and that's understandable, but they also don't, they probably didn't have them as solidly as we do in the first place. So if we can continue to invest, if we can continue to push ourselves to the forefront, just imagine where we can be on the other side of this. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm excited by the idea, right. you know, sure. It takes some surviving, some grit to get there, but, but I think we can be well positioned to be, so far ahead of the curve, because as Ben Berthelot, you know, and others will say, uh, yeah, we don't have mountains, we don't have white sand beaches, but people do come here. Why do they come here? They'll come here for our culture. So my thought is that if we can basically make money by having a good time in town, why wouldn't we? <laughs> well, and I think about the, the numbers that you just said, you know, I think Festival um, International probably attracts half a million, not five million. So to be able to get that tenfold and spread out over three weeks instead of three days, there's a lot of potential revenue there. Right. And so that does benefit us all. When you look at uh, sales tax, you look at hotels, you look at um, the people spending their money here. We all benefit in that revenue. Yeah. And I think that's and I mean, just back to the idea of like leadership and especially uh, public investment. I think that's the role of public investment is to say, look, we value this, but we would value it even more if you if you were twice as big or bought three times as many people. Now, we want to help you get there because we want that. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, the a previous administration had once said, you know, Festival International you know, we, we would give them, uh, the city would give them $200,000. And we thought it was a great deal because just in local sales tax collection, we get a million dollars back from those five days. It was, a, it was a really, you know, I, I wish I could do that a hundred more times. Right. What a deal. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Think, what like, investor wouldn't give 200,000 to get 1 million? I mean, that's, yeah, that's it's like, five for one. Checks and the best thing is we can exchange the checks and then we can go see some cool music at the same time. <laughs> and I mean, things like that are just, they, they're, they're, when when put that way, I think anybody would get it. But I don't think that story is told enough. Right. Well, do you think also it's part of this theory that I don't have to give you the two hundred thousand and I'll still get the million? <laughs> I mean, it's it's certainly probably something that is thought, but I've never seen evidence of that working. <laughs> right. Uh, when, when the idea of, oh, well, the, the private sector needs to step in and support mm -hmm. the private sector is already there. Uh, you know, and it's the, these nonprofits go to the private sector, go to uh, individual kind of philanthropists, which our community does not have a deep well of. Because uh, we're a younger community overall, you see much deeper roots in philanthropy when you have these older, older communities where generations of wealth have done things like create family foundations and and you know really create a structure of uh, support. But you know we're a younger community overall. Uh, you know the the oil boom of what, the nineteen uh, you name it. Uh, is still in our recent recent memory, and that that transfer of wealth hasn't. Put our community in the place where uh, where we have those kind of philanthropic foundations. You see, like you know, uh, James Devin Munkus 
being one of these few real leading uh, philanthropists who's, who's helping make that transfer a reality. But so the idea that our private sector businesses then would step in, you know, businesses are businesses. It's like, Jackie, hey, you want to sponsor a festival internationally? You got $100,000. It's great exposure for you. Like, but I know you have other priorities too. <laughs> well, and I've already committed to the downtown burger battle royale, Sam. So I can only commit to so many things at a time. Exactly. But, but that's the thing is that, you know, everybody I'm sure when asked is willing to do some part if it makes sense, but it doesn't just automatically step in and happen. Right. So there's really is a role for um, public investment to help make sure that there's a strong foundation that you can build all these great, you know, uh, wonderful castles off of. Right. In the case of Edinburgh, they built actual castles and people go visit them. Right. Well, well it's a castle to go to war. That was a whole different thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, you think about infrastructure and the infrastructure we've built. And I look around downtown and we built these beautiful park stages and these areas for festivals. And so to me, it seems like we've invested in the infrastructure um, and you don't have that boom bust from our cultural economy the way you do from other industry. And so it feels to me like as long as we keep investing in our cultural economy, it continues to grow. Is that not the right way to think about it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's it's a it's a funny thing because it because as I was talking about, it's like this kind of groundswell effect. It is. Uh, like small scale investments, little tiny things that can spread out or those kind of infrastructure investments like a park or a venue that can then affect lots and lots and lots of different people, all the different people who perform at ACA, uh, whether it's a show that we put on or it's the symphony putting on their own performance or whether it's, you know, an outside promoter, a ballet company, whatever. They're all paying their people. That's all, you know, they're collecting tickets, they're selling a product and they're putting it back into the community, into this community. And it's incredible. And it's a lot, a lot, a lot of economic activity that happens because you have that asset, uh, whether it's Park International downtown as a venue uh, that lets Festival International, that lets uh, ACLA, that lets, uh, you know, any number of other downtown rising, uh, downtown live, that lets a lot Patty of in the park, in the park uh, that lets, you know, a ton of, you know, kind of informally or, or um, separately organized activities happen, you know, it, those things don't necessarily happen without that asset. Uh, so it is about finding those strategic little pieces of the puzzle that say, this is what we're missing. This is what we need uh, that can at least fill in the gaps so that the private sector can come and activate and pour their, you know, their own resources and their own energy and creativity uh, into uh, these activities <clears throat> that they wouldn't be able to do you know, on the backyard stage at the Blue Moon Saloon, because you can only put 50 people there. Right. <laughs> Although I feel like I've been there with 250, but I know what you mean. I don't know um, out, but yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, so when I think about the, the venues, as we're talking about them, and there's all this talk around the hymen, and maybe, you know, it's going to be replaced mm -hmm. soon. Um, should its replacement be located downtown to tie into all that we already have down here? Yeah, I mean, I'll just again. My my background is in cultural policy, and you know, basically the 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 study of making decisions like that. <laughs> and in Edinburgh, we were talking about a very very similar project, uh, which was creating a mid sized venue for the Scottish Chamber Orchestra, uh, which would you know their whole thing was oh, well we're okay it's going to cost a hundred million dollars and we're going to make this beautiful world class place. Frank Gehry is going to design it. It's going to be this 
you know, this landmark piece of the city, but it needs to be a mid-sized venue. It needs to be flexible in what it can do. It needs to be able to host a convention as easily as a, you know, seated concert performance, as easily as a standing room uh, show, as easily as have, you know, two separate wedding receptions happening simultaneously. And it needs to be in an area where that activity creates foot traffic around it. And that foot traffic deposits those people into restaurants, bars, other venues uh, to create that swell of activity, basically a tornado of economic activity. And that only works. It only happens and it only brings back to the public good from, a, from an economic perspective if it's in a downtown. <laughs> so, you know, you might have a big field somewhere and I know UL's got like 50 of them, but none of those should house a performing arts center. Uh, at least, you know, we shouldn't spend a public dollar building a performing arts center to do that because it wouldn't come back to the public good. Right. You don't, you don't build a lighthouse, uh, you know, 10 miles inland. You build it in a harbor where there's boats coming and going. Right. <laughs> Right. So I'm mentally walking around downtown right now thinking of the best areas. Um, so is that like a two block, three block radius uh, where we should plant this new convention center? Because I feel like Ooh. there's a couple different options and I would be super excited. There's definitely options. There's options that there's land. There's so much land downtown that's just parking lots. Right. <laughs> that's just surface parking lots or that is, you know, that are that are, uh, you know, just, just green fields. When you think about getting closer to. Uh, the railroad tracks. Mm -hmm. I think I think places like that too, where you where you think about the Rosa Parks Center as this kind of multi multimodal uh, transportation hub. That's another piece too. When you say, "Hey, we're going to make uh, a performing arts center and a convention center that's downtown, that's really accessible. You, you can walk around, you know, uh, once you're there, but also you can get there by bus. You could get there from New Orleans or Houston by train." Right. Uh, those are really exciting additional possibilities. And I think it's another reason to be kind of close to that kind of transportation hub uh, in downtown Lafayette. <clears throat> so, yeah, absolutely. And when you think about, you know, how I-49 uh, and the Evangeline Thruway has been such a wall between downtown and neighborhoods on the other side, uh, as we look at, you know, a potential I-49 project someday, maybe, uh, a project like this could really help bridge and connect those communities too, and serve as, and you know, amidst a wall, it could be a gateway. Right. Uh, so well, that's I, amazing. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> well, I'm just I'm thinking about the possibilities, you know, to have because uh, we've participated in events at the Hyman, you know, over the years, just like everybody else, and so to have that new uh, convention center venue opportunity that's flexible and putting it downtown where everything else circles around it. Like you said, a tornado, um, all of a sudden the, the possibilities are endless. Absolutely. And that's the thing that's like, that's the difference between just making a, you know, a cultural investment or a civic investment and making a smart one. Right. right. <laughs> and well, when into account where we really like, can we picture 50 years from now, <clears throat> that venue being almost as old as the Hyman Center and what it looks like around it. Uh, because the Hyman Center is a good example of a place that is not necessarily on real a real commercial corridor. 
Right. It, it was built where it was, you know, a lot of the reasons because of the philanthropy of the time and the community of the time. But, <clears throat> you know, I might be the only person who's walked to the Hyman Center. <laughs> but I walk walk. So. Well, and I, I'm a big fan of walking too, but that's a hike all the way to the Hyman. Talk about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now I see little Sam in his suit walking down St. Mary. That's very funny <laughs> to me. Um, so y'all were able to do some things during this pandemic um, at the ACA. And the first thing that pops into my mind is the Illustrated Cafe. So walk us through how that came to be, what the experience has been like for people who haven't seen it yet, what it is. Absolutely. So the Illustrated Cafe uh, is a project by Aileen Bennett, who is a designer and artist, more newly an artist uh, and an illustrator in particular. Uh, and Aileen came to us with the idea for an exhibition that she really wanted to be playful and immersive and fun. And the idea is that it you would be able to walk into this space that is an actual functioning cafe, which we do have here in our building at ACA. It's open to the public uh, Tuesday through Saturday. But uh, <clears throat> that you'd be able to really walk into this space and that it be this illustrated environment. So it feel like and look like you're walking into a picture book. And that goes from, you know, all of the tables and chairs being, you know, basically being designed and, uh, and decorated such that they look like <clears throat> hand-drawn illustrations. There's a lot of fun, like 2D things that look 3D. There's a lot of 3D things that are real that look 2D. Uh, so a really, and a lot of little surprises and, uh, and tricks of the eye throughout the space. So that occupies uh, most of our uh, front window space at the ACA. So if you think about passing by on Vermilion and the kind of front doors of the building, the, the whole large window area to the right of our front doors, which is our cafe. Uh, and the, the goal is to have something that, you know, invites people in, that sparks curiosity. And that says, <clears throat> that invites you to say, you know, come find out what this is. You don't want it to be obvious. We want it to be, uh, to spark curiosity. And for them, and for it to bring people into the building uh, who otherwise might not come in because they look at us and they say, oh, that kind of looks like a bank or <clears throat> maybe that's some kind of fancy museum that I'm not invited. Because we are an art center and our exhibitions and our galleries are free to the public and we're open every day. And communicating that message and making that connection for our community is one of our big jobs. Uh, and it's one that, you know, we don't get paid back for because it is free. So we have to find every creative way to say it and to connect with people because we, you know, unless unless people walk in the building and we can't force them in, then we're not necessarily making an impact on them through our exhibitions, through, through the artwork we we display. And it's our goal and it's our, our, you know, desperate desire to make that connection. So her project's really fun. It's very cool. And I've seen a lot of people interacting with it and really digging, getting into it and, and digging it and just loving it. How can people support the ACA right now through memberships? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we, we rely on our, our members, which are just, you know, members of the community who uh, are willing to donate at an annual level. They start at $35 a year, you know, pretty, pretty small. Uh, <clears throat> all things considered, we definitely look for higher levels of support too. We kind of have three affinity tiers and at, at the higher affinities, we do a lot more like, you know, uh, like VIP treatment and special events and, and receptions and things like that. So there's good reasons if you're interested in, in diving deeper 
into uh, the arts and culture scene to become a member of the ACA. I actually see it as like three circles, you know, you kind of, you want to be like on your pathway in. Uh, and so right here in the middle, you know, is the people who get, get the highest level of kind of access, get those like backstage tours and meet and greets with the artists and all th all kinds of things like that. And, and yeah, without our members, we really, we couldn't do half of what we do. Uh, it's, it's our, our, our driving force again, because our, our galleries are free and open to the public. And when we put on performances, <clears throat> we're putting them on for them to be accessible to the community, for them to be, you know, low enough ticket prices that uh, with a small 300 seat theater and with reduced capacity where we might only have 75 seats, uh, <clears throat> that it's still economically attainable to the average working person. Uh, so that is also supported by our members and sponsors. Uh, otherwise, without their support, we would have to be, you know, economically, we'd have to be a very kind of elite institution. Ticket prices would be $150 uh, for, a, a you know, a, a better known artist or more. Uh, our galleries, we'd have to charge. And, and these are all things that, you know, <clears throat> certain kinds of museums and art centers do around the country, but we exist to support and connect this community. So uh, with the support of our members, we think we're able to do that pretty well. <laughs> so yes, if you're listening to this, please become a member of the ACA. Go to AcadianaCenterForTheArts.org uh, or call us at 337-233-7060. I feel like it's a telethon right now. Know, uh, right? Oh, we have a question. <laughs> um, Jessica says, I'm curious, what has been your most memorable experience at ACA? <sighs> Other than the pandemic. <laughs> <clears throat> the funny thing about the pandemic is that it's basically erased all memories, which right. is why the year feels so long. Um, honestly, I, I mentioned earlier that that performance with um, Scott Mulvihill, uh, who's a bass player and has a really awesome band, and uh, the Rayo Brothers as the openers, which was our last show before the pandemic struck. Uh, that's been a very vivid memory for me just because I've probably been sitting with it for eight months now. And it was just such a, <clears throat> it was a night where I, at the end of it, I was thinking, uh, this is exactly what we should be doing. It was this, you know, great uh, touring musician who no one had heard of, uh, who was on his kind of upward trajectory, who's incredible. And it was a great, uh, <clears throat> local band, the Rayo brothers, uh, opening for them. And there were a lot of people in the audience who either were there because they were familiar with the Rayo brothers, or maybe they had heard of Scott Mulvihill, or maybe they just had heard that it was, there was a cool thing happening at the ACA and we got to them and they showed up and it was just this wonderful crowd and wonderful spirit. And everybody was kind of like learning about different music and getting exposed to new things and just having what seemed like an incredible, incredible time. And again, I've just I'm stuck with that in my mind as just being a perfect night. Uh, <clears throat> it was a very diverse audience, it was a younger audience. Um, and it's just something that I, I treasure and look forward to being able to get back to in a real way. Right. How do y'all select the artists who are gonna perform? Do you pick them? Do people reach out to you? Is it kind of a blend of both? It is a blend of both. I mean, we we are a venue, so we will 
we'll work with other, you know, promoters and presenters in town. Uh, <clears throat> but typically for those, it tends to be things like the symphony is there, you know, puts on their own shows. We don't have a lot of uh, promoters other than like the ACA. <laughs> we have a, a few, but not ones that are putting on shows at our scale. Uh, so then the shows that we do put on ourselves, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's about relationships with uh, agents and touring artists. And, you know, we're, we're always just trying to bring in uh, national talent that <clears throat> has never been to this community before. And that is different kinds of music. You know, we do get much larger scale, like country and Christian concerts in town. You'll see those at the Cajun Dome, you know. But we're talking about bringing through other kinds of music. We want to see, uh, we want to see those, uh, <clears throat> you know, kind of like rootsy folk bands. We want to see blues. We want to see jazz. We want to see, you know, uh, alternative rock. We want to see, I don't know, just just the full gamut of of music, and especially the kind that's best experienced in a small, intimate space. Right. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I think about that. I'm guessing that's the same way it works for you selecting the artists that go into the gallery as well, right? You recruit them, they approach you, kind of a similar situation. Yeah, absolutely. And and for our for our exhibitions, you know, we tend to uh, we'll either do like solo ex exhibitions, like we have one coming up. Uh, we'll do a uh, kind of review of a, a local artist, Stephanie Patton, uh, mm. and her work. Uh, later this spring and uh and stephanie is an artist who is, is an internationally shown artist uh is incredible and and just one of those wild wild talents that lives in our community too uh so this is <clears throat> a little bit like a mid-career retrospective or you know kind of review of her work today because she's a really really active artist and so we did select her as somebody who we really wanted to highlight, you know, back here in her home community too, because people don't necessarily know about her unless you know her. Right. <clears throat> and she hasn't shown here in big ways in the same ways that she does in New York or, <laughs> or Tokyo or, you know, uh, other, other big cities with these big art markets. Uh, <clears throat> and the other way that we put on shows is group exhibitions. So we will announce uh, we're going to have an exhibition uh, coming up in January called Flammed, which is going to be uh, about the intersection of kind of performance and like as as it happens in professional wrestling and and just that kind of like playful element of like public performance and attitude. And we're inviting artists to <clears throat> respond to that theme. Uh, and also, you know, it's a it's a very playful idea. It's it's about not taking art art for art's sake too seriously. It's about making sure that it is about communicating something and connecting with people. But but in that case, you know, we're going to be advertising that as an open call for artists of whatever kind of whatever background uh, within basically the Gulf South region to to submit. Uh, and then our our curator uh, together with the curator at the Hilliard Museum. Or co-curating uh, co that show, awesome. um, and they'll select from the submissions uh, the works that they want to really build the the show around. So it's kind of those two different ways. We'll really go after artists, but we'll create these these open calls as well. That say, look, we're we're doing a show that's on this topic. We want to explore women landscape painters. We want to explore <laughs> professional wrestling. We want to explore this topic. 
if we don't know about you, let us know about you. <laughs> I feel like somebody must have made a comment in passing that the ACA is too highbrow and you want to prove them wrong right now. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> well, we're not a highbrow community. No. You know, and, and I think that's, it's really to our benefit. You know, when, when people's idea of a rehearsal dinner for a wedding is a crawfish boil, you know you're not in a highbrow community. And that's great because it, it takes away so much of the pretense. I mean, if you think about how much time and money people waste just trying to appear grandiose and they could have spent that time and money actually having a good time and actually, you know, celebrating their culture and their heritage and their community. <clears throat> I mean, that's, that's the backbone of who we are, I think, is that we're not this kind of high, highbrow community. Right. And in some ways we're at our worst when we are that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, years ago, there was a show on um, AOC uh, that the now super successful on uh, SEAL team uh, actor, Judd Lormand, hosted. That was all about wrestling, uh, specifically, I think it's Mid-South Wrestling. So I'm wondering if y'all are going to pull some of those old episodes or get Judd to come in and actually, uh, as a part of the curation of this show, provide his own narration like you used to do on that TV show. I can reveal nothing about it. You know, okay. The opening of that exhibition. In all right. <laughs> but really, how funny would that be? That's a funny, funny tie-in. I like it already. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we've got about five minutes left. And I wanted to kind of touch on a few things that maybe people don't know about you. And so one of my favorite are the um, lightning round questions here. Lightning so round. Yeah. lightning round. So first thing that comes to your mind, favorite place on earth? Ooh. Uh, Paleohora Crete, which is where my wife and I <coughs> did our honeymoon. We went to Crete. We kind of wandered around. We kind of had a no agenda trip and we, we stumbled upon this little like beach bum community called Paleohora on the Southern coast of Crete. And we were just like, why don't we just stay here for the rest of our lives? <laughs> I mean, is it what I imagine when I think of that area is that, you know, white buildings, blue roofs, beautiful sea. Yeah, absolutely. Except that this is this community was also uh, like colonized by hippies in the 1970s. So it's that plus a ton of hippies. So there's like one of the best vegan restaurant I've ever been to <laughs> was in Paleohora. And it's in Crete, which is overall a pretty kind of conservative buttoned up uh, island community, but in this, this funky, hilarious beach town. So, so it's like a European Malibu. Yeah, exactly. Which is super hippie. I know people think about it for the celebrity aspect. That's a very small percentage. Most of Malibu is just a big hippie community. Exactly. Um, that's so cool. Okay. Uh, movie you can't turn off. Ooh. Um, a movie that I can't turn off and one that I would actually like watch back to back before was uh, Gosford Park uh, by, uh, it was an, it's a Robert Altman movie as the director and it was written by the guy who more infamously went on to write uh, Downton Abbey. Mm. Uh, so it's similarly like set in a kind of country manner, but it's an Altman movie. So it's also very kind of subversive and strange and people are talking over one another all the time. But it's the kind of movie you can rewatch and it's, it's quiet enough in a lovely British way. But it's, it's interesting enough that you can, every time you see it, you pick up on 10 new things. So 
Gosford Park. That's an interesting <laughs> juxtaposition, and I've not seen it, so I'm going to have to put it on my list now. I recommend it. It's in my top three. Okay, good to know. Um, okay, Sam, I'm pretty sure you're smarter than me, so I'm assuming you don't watch TV at all. But if you did, what would be a TV show that you would like to binge watch? Oh, I mean, my wife and I are in the process of binge watching Great British Bake Off, and I'll okay, it. Uh, we 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 watched a lot about a year ago, and we came back to it just a month ago. We just recently had a baby, so you know, you need that kind of midnight late night uh, viewing that is also. It's both bingeable and, you know, addictive, right? Uh, but is also very much about people complimenting one another. <laughs> the perfect pandemic show. Um, when we had little babies, my binge, because, you know, we didn't have Netflix and Hulu in those dark days. Uh, and so my binge was pop-up videos on VH1. Oh. And they were on 24-7 late night. And so it was something easy you could have in the background while trying to soothe a child who was needing to eat at 3 a.m. <laughs> pop-up videos um favorite book but i loved it with the little pop, pop exactly i love that favorite book uh favorite book Ooh. uh I've, I've been in a reread as well kind of like a comfort reread mm -hmm. of the works of terry pratchett oh. uh, <clears throat> and when one of his books i mean I've, I've read a lot of serious literature in my time but I'm in a mode where I don't care for it. And what I want is something that is light and fun and funny. And Terry Pratchett is, is my guy. And one of his books that was one of his kind of later works is called Thud. It's part, it's the end of a very long series because he would write tons. He's written more books than, you know, any 50 authors combined. Uh, <laughs> he was the best selling author before JK Rowling. And, uh, and Thud just goes down in history as my, <clears throat> one of my favorite books, at least my, my favorite reread of this year. Awesome. I don't know if I have a new read this year. It's been a bad year in that way. Awesome. <laughs> have you uh, have you let James at Beausoleil Books know so he can stock up for you? Uh, I have not yet, but I have been over to Beausoleil Books and I bought a lovely, lovely edition of the Complete Odes of Pablo Neruda, Ooh. Uh, which that is also uh, one of my wife's favorite as well. So, that's awesome. Poetry side, that's a whole different discussion. Sure, of course. Uh, favorite podcast? Favorite podcast? Ooh, I'm an avid podcast listener. And right now my favorite podcast is called The Omnibus Podcast. Oh. Uh, John Roderick, uh, who is an old alt rocker from Seattle, and Ken Jennings, the all-time world champion of Jeopardy. Mm -hmm. They have a podcast where they uh, talk about obscura. So, you know, random topics that are obscure that they want to preserve for future generations because they assume that the apocalypse is looming any day now. <laughs> well, that's a light experience. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, I know you're a big walker, uh, but do you have a favorite car? No, I don't have a favorite car. <laughs> All right. Um, and this might be like trying to pick amongst your favorite people, uh, but do you have a favorite festival? Favorite festival? I mean, this this is going to seem like such a cop out because it's kind of a family matter. But Festival Acadien Creole is my favorite festival. Uh, admittedly, it was started by my father-in-law, but it was my favorite festival before I married his daughter too. Sure. So, uh, but it's just such a wonderful spirited kind of community gathering and if you listen to me at all today you know that i think that you know what makes our culture and community strong is when people come together to you know celebrate to listen to music to dance to have a good time in a way that's unpretentious and casual 
And I think Festival Lacadia, <clears throat> even more so than Festival International, is that real um, festival that really brings kind of our local community together to spend time together in that way. Right. Um, favorite musician? Favorite musician? Uh, I think it's it's still probably Andrew Bird. Uh, <clears throat> I, I haven't, you know, I, I did a very, very deep, long dive with Andrew Bird, and I've kind of never come out of that uh, that that love relationship for him and his music. Someday I'll get to bring him to ACA or if I'll do that. Uh, we've been, we've talked to his manager a lot. <laughs> that would be awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, favorite yeah. fine artist or artist in general. Oh man. Favorite artist in general. Uh, always one of the most difficult questions. Somebody asked me that question a couple of years ago and I was just like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> say anything, just say anything. I was like, oh, well now I really don't know. But, uh, I mean, an easy go-to for me is actually somebody like Stephanie Patton. Uh, I love her artwork. It's phenomenal. Uh, and then there, she's also one of those kind of artists who mentors and brings up people behind them. And is just like such a supporter and teacher of other generations. Uh, and so she's just <clears throat> an incredible artist uh, in terms of the work she makes, in terms of how fun it is, in terms of how heady and explorative it is. And as well as just like, you couldn't have a better person. Right. Right. So. No, that's a great answer. Um, okay. Last but not least, uh, the favorite concert you've ever been to. Hmm. Favorite concert I've ever been to. Jeez Louise. <clears throat> An incredibly difficult question. <clears throat> I'm known for the hard hitting tough questions here. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. I have to say I saw, uh, Wilco in New Orleans uh, at the Lyceum with my brother and we had really good seats and that was a really just kind of I, I wasn't even necessarily that big a Wilco fan before but it was one of those just like concert nights that was just like yeah this is epic everything right. happening here is happening <laughs> uh, and you know that 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 scale of concert for me is is rare. I really like the smaller, the little more intimate. I like dancing. So, <clears throat> you know, in terms of concert, concert, yeah. I'll That's say a well. good choice. I probably should have said that happened at the ACA theater. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think we should get him to come here. That would be awesome. Yeah. Um, Sam, our, our time is winding down. I cannot thank you yeah. enough for <laughs> spending this hour with me and to everybody who was watching and commenting. Mm -hmm. I appreciate uh, y'all being a part of this experience. Um, I hope that we all get to spend time together at the ACA soon. And in the meantime, I need y'all to buy memberships to support it, to keep it going. Uh, check out the Illustrated Cafe. Get ready to swing by when Stephanie Patton shows up. And overall, do everything you can to keep this cultural necessity a part of our community and thriving. Sam, and thank you very much. Come by the ACA any day. Come say hello. Come have a cup of coffee. Love to see you. Absolutely. That would be great. Thank and thank you, you all very you. much. And uh, we'll see y'all next week. Thanks so much. Bye. Well, the day is through.